Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Moore. This is episode number four. We're going to be talking about hedging portfolios, hedging positions, all things about protection. And this week, we've got, uh, obviously, a repeat guest. Uh, you remember him, you know and love him from episode number three, and that's Jay Pestercelli. Jay is the founder of Zega Financial and also the author of Buy and Hedge, which is actually buy and hold. I'm looking at the book right now, Jay. Crossed out the hold, and you've got Hedge. How are you doing today? Doing great. Yeah, the, uh, that cover was... Uh kind of influenced by the the concept of you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's good stuff about holding for the long term, but don't always hold it without protection. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, we talk about hedging. Uh, it's it's one of those things where, you know, we'll, we'll talk about options, we'll talk about hedging. And when I was writing my book, I, I thought I had this really great idea, Jay, about coming up with an analogy. And then I, I wound up scrapping it for any number of reasons. But I, I was thinking about hedging, and it's kind of like you want the majority of the good stuff, meaning the upside of the portfolio, but you want to eliminate a lot of the downside. And I was kind of thinking back to when Diet Soda started, and you know Diet Coke or Diet Tab. I don't know which one was first, but it's like, hey, you get most of the good taste, but you eliminate most of the bad stuff. And then somebody told me, well, there's actually a lot of bad stuff soda. And I didn't want to have Coca-Cola. Gets, I don't want to be sued by anyone, much less by Coca-Cola, multi-billion dollar corporation. But when I think about hedging, that's kind of what the idea is, right? Yeah. that's uh, it's, You know, I leave it to you to come up with a new analogy every time I talk to you. You have provided me so much so much uh, analogy material over the years, Derek. I, uh, uh, I I can't even begin to fathom where I'd be on explaining options without you. But you're, you're totally right, right? The, the you know, we, we hedge all the time, right? It's something that I think people don't realize they do unless you, you point it out, right? You're always, you know, managing your risk in some way or another. And, and you hedge with things like, you know, your car, your house. Uh, why not your biggest investments, which is your portfolio? And I won't, I won't dive into those just yet, but you're totally right. Capturing a majority of the upside of the market movement is obviously important. You still want the growth of the market, uh, but nobody wants to participate in the downside, and hedging helps you you manage that to to actually to a mathematical level, not just a relative level, but mathematical level when you use options. You know, and I and I think about how traditional hedging is done. When when people say, well, traditionally, the best way to hedge is to diversify. And look, there, there's really two types of risk in the market. One is, and we saw this recently, and and I wrote a piece for for your site, Jay, on on Facebook. Single stock risk where something happens in the stock, the earnings come out, they're bad, the CEO gets led away in handcuffs and the stock drops. Uh, that type of single stock risk can be diversified away by investing in broad portfolios or, or index funds. But then you have systematic market risk. But generally over the past X number of years, it's always been, well, let's do a certain percentage in stocks and a certain percentage in bonds, or uh, you know, we'll just diversify our way uh, away from risk where, oh, you know, we'll buy Europe, we'll buy Asia, we'll buy. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I look at some of the numbers from the two th 2007 to 2009, and I have a table in, in my book, not to uh, a shameless plug, Jay, for buying the broken pie chart, of course. But, uh, you know, you look at the S&P peak to trough, it was down about 56%, financials down over 80%. The best you would have done is if you were in healthcare, and that was a loss of about 40%. And I think you make the point in your book, you really can't diversify away 
market risk, when markets get bad enough, it sort of fails, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it does. And uh, stocks are stocks when everything is tanking. They're all highly correlated. Fine, maybe Johnson & Johnson doesn't drop as much as Google, but you didn't gain as much in Johnson & Johnson as you did when, on, the, on the upside, right? And so your net experience on that is all stocks, you know, experience the same, dare I say, bloodbath of, uh, of, of, of a lifetime type recession like the Great Recession in 08. Um, if, if I can make a comment about, about bonds for, for one second, Derek, or, or diversifying away, you know, uh, and I think I've, I've used this example with you in the past. When you, when you buy a house, right, you're not, if, let's say you just happen to have half a million dollars, you're going to buy a house, right? I'm going to buy a house worth a half a million dollars. You don't buy a $300,000 house and leave $200,000, you know, not invested in the house just in case something happens as your protection. Um, and because what that would have meant is you just bought less of what you actually wanted and you've got all this, you know, this other thing over here, which in this case is cash. You don't do that. When we buy real estate or we buy homes, we spend the money on our house, put the $500,000 in and we buy homeowners insurance, right? You get more of a house, right? You get to experience more of the appreciation of your real estate over time. And yes, you're paying for some insurance, but you know, your, your growth over time, uh, is certainly, you know, from a net dollars perspective, bigger when you spend more on the $500,000 than the $300,000 that you had $200,000 kind of protecting sitting in cash. I know it's kind of a roundabout way to think about it, but we don't diversify on some of our largest purchases like real estate. We buy them and then we protect them. Yeah. And I think about bonds too. And, and this is where there's a little bit of a debate about, you know, the 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And this whole idea of if you look back over 70, 100 years, that seems to work. And the idea generally is, okay, you have your portfolios in stocks, and if stocks go up, you sell some of the stocks and you, and you rebalance to 60, 40 in bonds and vice versa. But you know, when we look at some of the risk metrics, something like a sharp ratio, which attempts to you know, look at the, what you could get in the market with little or no risk, uh, and then you, you kind of look at some of the other metrics they're really not great over time. And with bonds, you know, historically bonds, uh, it's about the spread between what the bond is paying and what inflation is. You're really not getting much of a premium over inflation right now. So to me, this is an oversimplification, but bonds are really not much more than just a, a holding period. I don't want to call them a, you know, a book holding the door open, but uh, they're not, I mean, to me, they're more of a funding source for other things than they are in a portfolio. Yeah, I mean that's why I use that kind of cash equivalent in the in the real estate example. You're right; they're sitting there and uh, you know not providing a ton of offset for you. So I I, uh, I I couldn't agree more with you. Right? We we think that the better way to create the protection um, is uh, uh, is using protection. You know, we we've if I could back up for a second, we've used the term hedging a few times, and a lot of times when people hear the word hedging, they think hedge funds. Or they think, you know, the things you have to you know, clip because the bushes get out of control, right? But um, but what, what a lot of people think is about hedge funds, and we're not talking about hedge funds. We're talking about hedging, the act of actually putting on protection. You know, the term hedging your bets is a better equivalent of what we're talking about, not a hedge fund. The hedge fund is just a, you know, it's a fancy way of saying, here's a fund that you're allowed to do whatever you want. I mean, I think originally they started out designed as an offset. But uh, today, hedge funds in no way uh, are really considered to be a protective vehicle. They're actually usually considered a lot more aggressive. 
That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about hedging your bets, hedging as a protective terminology. Yeah, Jay, in fact, uh, looking right at your book, I think this is chapter 15, uh, again, talking with Jay Pestercelli, founder of Zega Financial, author of Buy and Hedge, The Five Iron Rules for Investing Over the Long Term. You describe hedging, you said, look, hedges are designed for protection, and the degree of protection can be customized to the investor's preference. Defensive hedging means that some kind of negatively correlated position will reduce or completely offset losses if the market moves opposite of your investment bias. You later talk about uh, hedging is really a counterbalance. And so it's not about diversifying and hoping things turn out well. It's about applying positions or using tools uh, that go up when your overall positions are going down, right? That's exactly right. Thank you for the, uh, for the plug on my book. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Two of them. Yeah, and I think it's, but it is worth mentioning because a lot of times when we hear, I mean, I, I don't want to pick on CNBC or Fox Business, but those are financial channels and a lot of people go on there and they say, you know, what would you do if the market's getting too high? You know, would you take some money off? Would you diversify? Would you go to consumer cyclicals or consumer staples? But in the end, when things get bad enough, it all goes down. And so really what the hedging that, that we're sort of using and, and, uh, and advocating for is using something that is going to, to put a floor in a portfolio and you've got a little more certainty about how that instrument's going to act, right? That's exactly right. It's, it's, um, the, the level of certainty is the, is the real important piece that you're, that you're pointing out because uh, when you don't know when you're diversifying that the act of you purposely putting things that are supposed to, you know, create some level of lower volatility or protection. You don't, you don't know how those are going to react. You're, you just don't, right? You don't know all the market forces. Um, but with options, you can actually link your hedge, your protection to your core investment, right? And they are just designed to be, uh, uh, they're, they're linked. I mean, I don't know about what other better ways to say it. It's almost like when you buy insurance on your car, that insurance protects your car. You know they're linked. You don't have to worry about like, oh, you bought general life protection and right. your car isn't covered, right? They just they're they're linked when when you're actually buying on the underlying vehicle. Most people, when they think about options, and I think you mentioned this either in the book or you mentioned it on uh, in speeches or on appearances in media. Most people think about options as very risky, and your normal cohort is. I was queuing you up there, Jay. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you were queuing me up. I thought you were going to say what it was. I was like, we're not editing. We're not going to edit this out. All right, let's do this over. Jay, most people think options are risky, but what do most people do with options? Right, most people speculate with options, and it's that's the risky side of them. Uh, however, Derek, we don't. What do we do with options? We use them for what? Well, we use them for hedging purposes and to reduce the cost of long ownership. And the way I look at this, you know, people can show me a butter knife and well, you're going to like this, Jay. Stick with me on <laughs> is this. Is this a new one? Okay. Yeah. Well, it might be a new one for uh, at least for listeners, right? <laughs> um, if somebody showed you a butter knife, you'd say, well, that's not very risky, but it depends how you use the tool. I certainly can do nefarious things with a butter knife, not what, that I would, but options are a tool and it really depends on how are you going to use them. If you're speculating with options over the short duration probably not a, a good, long, systematic approach. But 
as you say, it's you have some underlying things and you're setting a floor in the portfolio. And for that, use something like a put option, which goes up when the market goes down, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, those are designed to uh, uh, give you the right to sell uh, at a locked-in price, regardless of where the market goes. So what that means is as the market is dropping, those puts cre- uh, uh, end up having more and more value because the less value of the market, but you've locked in a uh, a higher price with that put. Um, I, you know, I wasn't sure where you're going with the butter knife. I think you're totally right. And, uh, I was trying to think how you're going to figure out that a butter knife could be used for either income or protection, but I think it's good, right? Just spreading butter on, on a bagel or, or on a, on an English muffin. That's good use for a butter knife. I gotcha. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I look at, uh, at hedging, a lot of people are probably thinking about, okay, well, if I own stock, anybody can buy a put. And you've always made the point, you know, with enough training and enough, uh, you know, focus and experience, you probably could could buy something that represents the overall market, something like a broad, you know, S and P five hundred ETF, and you can buy a put. But, but put. But the challenge, though, is, you know, those can get pretty expensive, and you got to know which ones to buy when it's it's overvalued, undervalued. But then it's also about reducing the cost of hedging. Can you talk a little bit about you know the cost of hedging and um, how the strategies that we use sort of look to reduce that cost to let you have more of the the upside capture? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And and you know even if people just take away from this from the podcast, hey, I should buy a put uh, over time. That is absolutely going to be beneficial, right? That will yield results, especially when you have down markets. But there's a cost of that, and and protection can come. Uh, uh, certainly at a cost that over time will hinder returns. And so while uh, e- even if people just buy a put, I think that's like a huge step forward for anybody listening here. But there are better ways to do it. You know, purchasing puts or uh, using uh, kind of a, uh, I'll say, a call as a replacement for stock um, are good ways to create limited exposure to the market. Um, but then selling some options to also uh, help pay for the protection you bought is also uh, important because, um, you know, when, when when you buy a put, you've protected, you know, all the way down to zero in the market. And I don't think uh, anybody really believes the stock market's going to go to zero. Um, if we do, that will not, the, the stock market won't be our primary concern or even secondary, right? It'll be, you know, do I have enough food to survive and do I have shelter kind of situation? So, you know, using options, we're able to, um, figure out exactly how much protection you want and how much protection you need and tailoring it to your, your needs is really important. If you are, you know, at the uh, beginning of your investment life cycle, um, being protected is a little less important. So we don't want to pay as much for it over time because you've got a lot of time to take rebounds, uh, to capture rebounds. But if you're, you know, towards the tail end of your investment lifetime, you don't have 10 years to uh, uh, to afford to have a rebound. And so, again, you end up paying a little more for protection because you want to protect more because you just don't have time. So things like that are important. Selling options to help pay for it is important. Um, using sometimes uh, alternative vehicles like calls instead of actually owning stock is a good way to also reduce the cost of hedging. Um, hedging is important, but hedging in an efficient way is even more important. You know, you mentioned buying calls as, and I'll throw in an extra word, a a substitute for owning shares. And it is interesting, uh, you make mention of the book and, and as well, that you control shares, but you don't own. And really, that's also a hedge position because you're 
your max downside is a different situation. Now we joke around about the, uh, using a pizza coupon. And by the way, in, in the pre-show, uh, use the pizza coupon. In my book, I use a cup of coffee because you already took my pizza coupon idea. But Thank uh, you, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> I give you full credit for that. It was, but of no, course, we, a great analogy. By the way, the, the, the genesis of the pizza coupon, we, we used to, obviously, you and I have, have known each other for a while, and, and we were involved in investor education, TD Ameritrade. And teaching options is really, really difficult, especially those who have never done it before. And so, to try and simplify things, you and I would always try and come up with things. And, you know, we were, we were sitting around and, and we're kind of like, you know, options are, are kind of like a coupon, you know, buying a call option, kind of like a coupon that, you know, you pay a little bit for the coupon. Uh, but if you don't use it, all you do is you lose the small amount that you paid for it, you know? So, um, I think it's an interesting way, you know, most people think about hedging is just buying protection, but hedging can also be using something that represents ownership but reduces the cost, right? That's exactly right. Right. Like we like you said in the beginning, you want to be able to capture the majority of the good, right? And don't want to experience the bad. And 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 calls slash pizza coupons allow you to do that at a much more uh, uh, affordable cost. You're more efficient with your money. Yeah. And so and the other thing I think that that we do in the strategy is so you sort of control shares, but you don't own them. There's a reduced cost. Um there's selling options to, you know, further away from the market to help generate some premium to reduce your cost. And then there's the fixed income piece. You know, we sort of, anyone listening to the early part of the show would probably say, well, these two guys don't really like bonds. It's not we don't, don't like bonds. It's just uh, historically, I mean, bonds, in, investors are going to get pretty much what the, the coupon is paying. And right now rates are really low. Uh, the spread between the rates and the inflation is very narrow, meaning you're not really gaining much above inflation. But Jay, I mean, fixed income, the way that you use it as the portfolio manager on these strategies is a funding source. It's not like you're trying to reduce risk by being 60-40. You're taking a little bit of the, the dividends and interest from those and helping reduce the cost of hedging, right? That's right. That's right. You're trying to, you know, the, although, you know, we just finished kind of dogging a little on bonds as a way of diversifying your portfolio, they still do have the benefit of uh, generating dividends, right? That's what they're designed to do. And so we we want to use that to our advantage, let the diversification or the protection happen, not the diversification, the protection happen in the calls as the stock replacement or stock equivalent, and then use the fixed income for what it's really designed to do, which is generate some some cash for you. Yeah. And it's, you know, you mentioned something too about life cycle. And I think it's it's worth spending a little bit of time on this. And you know, anyone who's sort of looked at a, a retirement calculator and the retirement calculators, you put in your age, you put in your salary, you try and figure out how much assets you have, you estimate or you assume that you'll get some rate of return. You retire at some point, you try and pick what day you'll die out of thin air. You know, that's sort of the wild card. <laughs> and it's, it's really a retirement calculator. It's not when you're retiring, it's when you're going to die. So, you know, chew on that for a second. But you mentioned Retire about the life, life cycle, you mean, I guess. Right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's I I found more and more when I talk to individual investors, and I know you talk to a lot of advisors as well, and you hear about you know the situations of clients. I think people are needing more and more growth later on in that last ten or fifteen years prior to retirement, and the challenge is if you use traditional asset allocation models you start to gravitate to more of a 60-40, meaning 60 equities, 40% bonds, or 50-50. And 
the way these calculators are set up, it's kind of like in the 10 or 15 years prior to retirement, you get like your final double of assets. And if you don't get that, well, then your outcome is you either can't retire, you need to keep a second job, or you got to reduce your lifestyle. So to me, you know, a hedged equity strategy, which aims to get a good percentage of the upside, but reduce the downside, does allow a potential for more growth. Isn't that right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I love that you went back to the doubling. And I think we talked about it a little bit uh, in in uh, in podcast number three, but the number of doubles you need to get to the retirement spot is is a really important uh, calculation. I mean, I know not every, everybody always, doesn't always think that way, but um, you know, when, when we sit down with clients, I know you and I both sit down with individuals all the time. And, you know, if they're sitting there with 250,000 and they need to figure out a way to, you know, what, what's the level I want to retire. And let's say 2 million is the number that, you know, you come to when it comes to cost, you know, that's a first double to 500, second double to a million, third double to 2 million, you know, to, to come up with that path of the three doubles to get to that level from 250,000 um, is much easier when you're not experiencing a minus 20, minus 30, minus 40% market year, right? Protecting the downside allows you uh, a much better opportunity to capture more of those doubles over time. And it's not just history, but uh, that tells us this, but, you know, everybody is going to experience a couple of those major markets, bear markets in their lifetime. And if you're going for, let's say you need three doubles and you're in the you know, in, in a, in a, in a strategy that's going to double every 10 years, you're, you've got 30 years ahead of you. And so you've got, uh, you're going to have a couple of those, right? And so avoiding the downside participation by hedging and protection is extremely important for you to hit those three doubles. And, and of course, the most important of those three doubles was the last going from 1 million to 2 million. So you're absolutely right, Derek, like the more protection, uh, the more the more you can rely on protection, it, it, it's, it, it gives you more sustainability and predictability on the future outcomes of your investment portfolio. It is a little bit interesting, too, and it just goes to investor psychology and where we are in the market. Uh, you know, after 2007, 2008, 2009, I mean, that was so, by the way, not every recession is that bad. You know, they call it the Great Recession. Nobody remembers the Great Recession of 1991. Um, I think, I think, you know, we had GDP negative growth for the two quarters. It was an official recession. I might not even have the date right. In other words, it, it really wasn't too memorable. But in, in the wake of 2008 and 2009, there, there was a lot of, and I saw a couple of things. Number one is I saw people miss out on the market rebound and the market upturn because they were so afraid and they were sitting in cash. And there's people even today who haven't reentered the market and they they feel like they missed it, and they've got to just wait for the next downturn. But what's really interesting, though, is that you know we're we're almost the longest quote unquote uh, you know period of a non recession. I think there's one other time that was that was longer than this, but we're coming up close to it. And I feel like a lot of the risk appetite, uh, a lot of the fear has waned, and people are starting to think, well, maybe I don't need protection. Or why would I pay for all this protection? I just I think it's two different dichotomies, and and you know, we've been in the markets for a long time, um, but it, it's like when the markets are at worst, people want it after the fact, and that's not really the time to do it. Yeah, um, it's you, that's such a good topic, Derek. There's like so many things we could hit on this. The first is um, being hedged all the time means you don't have to really worry about how you're timing your investments. 
Um, you don't know when the recession is coming. Usually, uh, the market will jump ahead of it six months before you actually experience the, the negative growth, right? The market is a forward-looking vehicle, and you may find yourself saying, hey, listen, we still have growth uh, in, in, in the economy. Why, why is the market down 20%? Well, guess what? It's a predictive vehicle. Uh, you probably won't have the growth when you look forward in a year. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing about hedging, which is really interesting, um, and the protection gets cheaper as the market gets more and more complacent. Believe it or not, it's almost like as you have more green lights, uh, uh, your risk of getting a, a traffic t- t- ticket goes up. How do you like that one? That's a new one. I just that's that good. Right. No, I like that. I, like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, usually I, I live in Florida, as you know, and I, I like to use the example of, hey, if the, if there was such a thing as just you know hurricane insurance, um, you know, during the months of say November to June when it's not hurricane season, it'd be a lot cheaper to buy hurricane insurance. So wouldn't that be the best time to do it? And you know, during the months of you know July to November when you are in hurricane season. Hey, hurricane uh, insurance is going to be a lot more expensive. Um, and so, you know, when there's fear in the market, protection has a higher premium. So, you know, why not hedge when the protection is more uh, affordable, which is when markets are moving up? It's, it's you know, the benefit is, hey, my portfolio is making money and my hedging just got cheaper. It's, it's the exact wrong time to take hedges off, in my opinion. You know, from an emotional side too, I always think about hedging. If you could eliminate what an investor feels uh, the most scared of, that all of a sudden becomes interesting. And, and I, I'll, you know, sort of quantify. Eliminate is, you know, there's always different risk in the market. Uh, you know, there's, uh, but with options, you, you've got the profit and loss chart is such that you're able to sort of lock in some outcomes with options. But it just, it becomes interesting to me if what you fear the most can be mitigated. Um, that becomes a really interesting situation for people. Yeah. I mean, being able to sleep at night is a real, you know, important thing as you're getting into that last, I'll call call it the last double, right? As you're getting into that period of your investment life, um, being comfortable, uh, having the state of mind, knowing that you've, you've kind of provided for you, your family or whatever your, your goals are, uh, is really important. The fact that you've taken steps to create that level of protection and certainty within your portfolio is really important. And you know what? If it costs you, you know, one or two percent a year to do it, who knows exactly what the cost of hedging is? I'll I'll hedge my statement by saying, you know, it always varies, but it's 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 absolutely worth it if you're still going to capture the majority of the upside movement in the market, and you get to avoid those big down years. Talk a little bit about uh, I think it's appropriate, you know, the idea of benchmarking, and benchmarking is one of those things where. For many years, now look, there, there's more information out there than ever before. I don't know about you, Jay. When I first started working at a brokerage firm, I mean, we would we would write tick, paper tickets, and then you'd have to get somebody to sign off or initial it. It would go into a tube in a building. It would get sucked down 30 floors, and they would either call or wire it down to the floor. And you know, if an investor wanted to get quotes, they were looking at you know yesterday's prices today in the Wall Street Journal, but there's so much information, but with that became this sort of fixation on on benchmarking. Benchmarking meaning, you know, you've got a portfolio, and I've got to beat the market. And unfortunately, I think, you know, and I, I I might use this in my book too. The idea of you know I've got twelve dozen, I don't know if there are twelve dozen, but twelve dozen South African mining companies uh, that shouldn't be compared to the performance of the S and P five hundred. And I find that one of the things that happens when we have these extended runs in the market without any real serious downturns 
investors might start to, to look at a reduced risk portfolio against a non-hedged market and start to feel like, well, I don't know about this because I'm trailing the market, but these really aren't designed to beat the market on the upside. It's really more about beating it on the downside, right? Yeah, it's and that's right. And and you're 100% correct that as uh, advisors, we have uh, we always have an obligation to make sure we put investors into the strategies that are appropriate for them, both fiduciary and uh, uh, fiduciary responsibilities. And so what, what, what a lot of people look at is, well, why couldn't I just buy the S&P 500? Why couldn't I buy the SPY? Right. And uh, we hear that conversation from time to time. And then, you know, our initial reaction is there come, there's a lot of risk associated with just buying the SPY. And while the market has had certainly a very good run since the bottom in 09, uh, uh, it's 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 difficult to know when that very good run will end, and it's difficult to know the magnitude of the reversal. And uh, nobody felt happy that they owned the SPY from two thousand seven to two thousand and nine, right? That eight, the middle of 07, right? That eighteen month period was pretty nasty. And let me tell you something: anybody that provided some protection but still lost was also criticized. So let's say, for example. You were you you were had a portfolio, and let's say you were lucky to have the index, or, or have the sector that only lost forty percent from the top of 07 to the bottom of 09, Right? You only lost. Well, uh, you know, clients and investors are going to you know look at that and say, well, I thought you were supposed to provide me value and provide protection through whatever strategies you're running. And the advisor would say, well, I saved you twenty percent of the decline. Not gonna matter. Right, the end investor thought they had a professional helping them and managing their risk. They still lost forty percent. For so, for if you really want to compare, you know, the apples to apples, you have to use the good and the bad because, we, as I just said before, you will experience some periods of of real turbulence in a straight up market exposed portfolio. So, yes, while you drag a little bit on the upside with a hedged portfolio, um, it's the downside is where you really provide. The value. And you know what? You're you are correct that a lot of folks look at, you know, the benchmarks and they say, well, geez, I could have just done, you know, done what the market did. And sometimes I wish we did just what the market did, you know. But uh there are times where, you know, those kinds of uh, uh portfolios end up really protecting you and really providing you the opportunity to avoid uh the major losses. Um I'm so I'm going to put a period there, Derek, and actually touch on kind of another point about a hedged portfolio in those down years, which most people don't think about, which is the ability to have more shares or more exposure on the way up than you had on the way down. So let me explain what I mean. And this is another one of those points about anybody can buy a put and hedge, but the way you hedge and take advantage of the hedged portfolio is really important. So um, since we all, let's just say we all believe over time markets are designed to go up. And even though you may have a 40% decline, the market will retrace and get back and exceed its previous highs. Yes, that is probably true. And historically speaking, that is true. Of course, your timing matters and you don't want to be, you know, in the last 10 years in the middle of a recession. But let's just make the assumption all markets go up over time. And if you could just wait it out, you're going to be fine. Well, so if that was the case, why, why bother hedging, right? If you had a lot of time, why bother hedging? The real advantage of hedging besides the participation and the downside, is the opportunity to increase your upside exposure by using the hedging profits to buy more stock. So 
Quick example of what I'm talking about. Let's say I was hedged at 10% down. Market drops 40%. I lose 10 in my portfolio. Actually, my stock loses 40. My hedge makes 30. My net uh, difference is only a minus 10 while the market's down 40. Well, we recommend you take that 30% that you just avoided or in losses because your hedge is now increased in value and buy more shares of whatever you were in in your portfolio while the broader market is down 40%. So now you've got 130% of the shares you have uh, had then on the way down. So if the market rebounds, you have a 30% more upside capture on the way up than you had on the way down. And you will now outpace the portfolio that was unhedged. And when it just gets back to even, let's say it rebounds back up. I'm trying to do the quick math on this stock. If you lose 40, you probably got to go up 80 or 80% to get back to even. So they gain 80% from their drop of 40. You are now gaining 80% on 130% of the previous number of shares, which means you're going to be way past them by the time the market gets back to even. So I know I went a long way around on explaining that, Derek, but it is one of the unsung heroes of hedging over time. The fact that you can have more shares on the way up than you had on the way down. It's almost like dollar cost averaging without putting more money in. Well, Jay, it's almost like what you've described there is sort of the the solution and the antidote to trying to time the market. And most people might sell out of a market because they think it's too high. If you've got a hedge on, uh, maybe you get to participate still if the market keeps running. And then if it does actually you know, crash or, or go down significantly, you've got the hedge on and you sort of get to buy lower anyway. And so what you describe in there is interesting from an emotional standpoint of, a, of an investor. Uh, if you're hedged, it's stay in the market. If it keeps going higher, great, you'll participate. But if it goes down and crashes, that's okay too, because you've got a, a hedge on and you can buy more shares. What you're giving up is you're giving up some of the, in the vis-a-vis a, a cost of hedging, uh, the idea of capturing all of the market going up, right? Yeah, and it's it's you almost have this perverse incentive using that tactic of wishing that the market is really down. So listen, if it's going to be down, get really down because I know the amount of upside exposure I'm going to have on the rebound will be more. So, you know, a market that, let's say your head's at that 10% and the market drops 15%. Okay, great. I saved 5%. Yay, that's not bad. And I get to reinvest and I have 5% more shares on the way up. I'd much rather be in my first scenario where the market drops 40 and I could add 30% more to my underlying shares uh, and then really, really participate on the way back up uh, versus the minor one. It's, it's, it's an odd, you know, hey, listen, your max is already defined. We said earlier, mathematically, you could define your risk with hedges. So you know you're in for 10%, right? And you don't really care you know, how much worse it gets because your your losses are locked at 10%. By the way, it's not going to feel great, right? A, a pullback of 40% is going to feel emotionally a lot more challenging than one of 15. But you should know it's actually a much better opportunity for you. Um, so if you're going to lose 10, you might as well, you know, get the opportunity to have a lot more on the way up than just say a little bit on the way up. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that. And it's, it's one of those fascinating things. Sometimes when I explain the strategy, I never quite know whether someone's going to say, well, I just want the market to go up and I'll, I'll take, you know, a percentage of the upside or the, or the person saying, wouldn't it be great if the market went down like 80% and I, I only took the first 10% and I got to buy really, really low. I'm never quite sure what the, you know, the person's going to, which side they're sort of picking. Um, I mean, really the, 
it, it's, I mean, either way, it's sort of a good income. I, I guess, you know, the challenge with any hedged equity is if you sort of, uh, you know, pay for the hedge and the market's just flat, that's not a great environment for the, for the strategy, right? Right, right. Flat, flat is the toughest because you still experience the full cost of the hedge, or even like a minus five, right? That's the toughest. You experience the full cost of the hedge. You paid for the protection, but you didn't use it. And actually in those scenarios, and that small amount of kind of time where that happens, where the market's, you know, flat to down a little bit, um, you're going to wonder, hey, why was I actually hedged? It didn't really benefit me. And that's true. It's almost like the fender bender that you have on the highway and then you turn around and you know you don't want to put it into your insurance because your costs are going to go up. So you just hand the guy $300 cash and say, sorry, I bumped your fender. You know, that's maybe, right. maybe that maybe that's a Jersey thing, Derek, you know, <laughs> maybe not everybody does that. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's right. I mean, you, you've sort of got the, the, the initial, the cost of hedging is like your deductible on a, on a car insurance policy. And you know, the loss isn't so great that you actually get to, to sort of benefit uh, or have a gain from, from, you know, the policy. But uh, Chris, we're on with Jay Prestocelli, uh, founder of Zega Financial and author of Buy and Hedge. Uh, you know, Jay, before we transition to, we've, we've been talking about really the buy and hedge strategy or buy and hedge retirement, and that's about putting floors in the market. I want to get to sort of the idea of having a buffer in the market. Uh, but real quick, let's go through a couple, uh, you know, sometimes you and I have presented this and we get questions. They say, well, wait a second, you can't just diversify. And I think we've already covered diversification. Uh, you know, wait a second, all you're doing is buying the market and buying a put or buying an option. Um, you know, I think we've already covered how on the nuance of this is which you buy, how to reduce the cost of hedging, understanding about market volatility and the option Greeks and, and time decay and all that. Uh, something else that sometimes comes up is, hey, why don't I just have a stop loss on, you know, my, my broad market ETF? Uh, but Jay, as you and I both know, stop losses are great until you get a significant gap down in the market. I mean, the gap, the market closes at one point. And then gap opens down the next day, you know, minus 15 or 20. Uh, it's not a hard stop. I consider it a soft stop and it's soft protection, right? Yeah. I mean, um, listen, it, lo- stop losses are better than nothing, of course, right? You and I both know folks that manage their risk um, are over the long period of time are going to outperform those that don't. And stop losses are the easiest way to do that. Uh, the challenges are two. One, you just mentioned you could have a day where your underlying uh, uh, investment gaps through your stop and you don't get out. Or if you have a market order at that point, you end up selling at a price that's significantly the, lower than where you expected. I think that's the first problem with stop losses. The second one is, well, let's say it's you stop loss, you know, it exactly works. Now you're faced with having to time your entry, right? So now you're in cash. And so then what are you going to do, right? Are you going to get back in the same thing a week later, three months later? You're not sure. So now you're again faced with the whole conundrum of, well, now I have to time when I'm going to go back in. So good job avoiding the loss, but now bad job of putting yourself in a situation of having to figure out when to go back in. You know, the other thing too I hear, and I think I, I mentioned this in, in my book, Jay, selling covered calls is not ahead. Selling covered calls uh, does cap the upside, it brings in a little bit of premium, so it reduces your cost basis. And over time, it can it can be part of a strategy. You know that you talked about uh, selling premium, uh, but really all it does is is only marginally reduce the downside by the by the amount of premium that comes in. 
Yeah, yeah, no, cover calls are not a hedging strategy at all. And anybody that but they're says pitched, they are. But they're pitched like that. And I've heard that, right? I mean. Yeah, no, they're not. Listen, they, 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 that, well, that would be incorrect because you're not protected at all, right? When you have a covered call on a long position, you could still ride your stock down to zero. And that covered call did nothing to stop or limit your losses, except provide you a small amount of, pre- a small amount of premium you earned from the sale of that call initially which is never going to be anything like a 30 or 40%. It's usually, you know, max 5% kind of a thing, right? Usually it's it's much less than that. So, you know, the only way that they would actually end up being, you know, ever considered protective is if they were deep, deep, deep in the money calls that were sold. And all you've done now is gone neutral. You might as well just sell the stock unless you think you could get some short-term premium in a deep, deep, deep in the money call. But that's not, you know, most people don't consider that a covered call. That's a deep in the money call against long stock. Those are different things. So, yes, Derek, you're right. Covered calls are not a hedge strategy. So, in the remaining time, uh, and Jay, we may have to have you back on. In fact, we will have you back on, of course. But you know, that's just host. I always love to be here. (laughs) That's just host. You know, uh, banter. You know, maybe we'll have you back on, Jay. And I want to do this this topic justice, but you know, we'll touch on it here. What we've really been talking about is with the first part of the program or the majority of the program is hedging the downside and putting a floor in a portfolio vis-a-vis the cost of hedging or some other uh, instrument uh, that does that. But the other thing, and, and I know this is something a little bit newer, um, you know, that the, the other strategy goes back much further. One puts a floor in a portfolio. The other puts a buffer. When we think about a buffer, it's the markets here, and I'm using my hands again, but the market's at one level. And then if you take your other hand, you drop it down, you say, well, let's buffer the area where losses, uh, quote unquote, you know, shouldn't occur. Or we'll suspend the losses until later down on the downside of the market. And so uh, options can be used synthetically, and that's a fancy term, but there's a lot of things you can do with options to synthetically create long ownership, meaning owning the market. And then bring in some premium and overlaying it on on some fixed income. But you know, Jay, just do the best you can in the remaining time that we have. Yeah, you know, the idea of a buffer is interesting because then you get to potentially participate in more of the upside, right? Um, but you buffer some losses. It's not a hard floor, and at some point you might start to rejoin the losses, right? Yeah, and and uh, so I will try to do take a different angle on this, Derek, because I think you did a good job explaining the buffer. But buffer is exactly what the term says. Um, large institutions, by the way, have been doing this buffered strategy for years. Um, it's just nobody's really packaged it in a way uh, where you could see it as an individual investor in your uh, in an account. And so uh, we have Derek has. It's one of the things that uh, uh, we really helps. Uh, stand us out when it comes to list of strategies. But buffers are uh, uh, essentially the idea behind them is, hey, if the market's going up, I want to capture some, all, or even a little more of the market growth on the upside. But I want this buffer zone of protection, whereas if the market is down moderately, say, minus 10, 15, 20, even 25%, I don't want to participate in any of those losses. I want to swap out my risk in those situations from, say, stock risk to something less risky, uh, uh, and less volatile, like a different asset class, like bonds. And while you know bonds are traditionally lower, uh, have a lower volatility than stocks, and so when things are dicey in the market, wouldn't I rather have exposure to bonds than having market exposure? And when things are really good, wouldn't I rather have exposure to something like stocks that grow quickly versus bonds, which usually don't? 
That's the concept behind the buffered products. And uh, the difference between that and, say, a hedged product, the, the way we build these is um, with a hedging product that we just talked about before, we talked about, hey, you're going to take the first, let's say, 10% drop. But in the buffered products, these are built in a sense that uh, in a way that you don't take the first 10%. We build them actually so you don't, we don't intend to take the first 25% of market risk. And so, yes, you'll participate after that. But it's pretty infrequent that the market drops 25%. Um, we know it just happened in 08. But the, that over time has happened uh, uh, on a pretty infrequent basis. We talked about you're going to experience one or two of those in your lifetime. Granted, yes, we get that. However, on those other years where the market's down 10, which are more frequently, uh, I think the market is down more than 8%, 20% of the time, Derek, right, in a single year. And so taking those out of your returns and having those being flat years for you, uh, again, helps you achieve the doubles that you're trying to get, especially in those last years. So buffer zone of protection between zero and say minus 20, 25%. Upside capture of the market could be the same, sometimes even a little more, sometimes a little less, depending on how conservative you want to be. And after the buffered zone, then you re-participate in the drop in the market. So it's just moving the risk around a little bit in the portfolio. And if that's right for you, uh, it's a strategy that uh, uh, if you're going to be invested for a long time, it's a strategy uh, that is really built to really capture more of the upside and buffer against those small, you know, little dips years. It's interesting, you know, when you talk about those, the the percentage of the time, I think you just mentioned 20% of the time the market's down 8%. Uh, you know, that's eliminating those types of things are not insignificant uh, over the long term. And, you know, the uh, of course, if you have a year that's as bad as 2008 and you get below the, the buffer zone, well, then... You know, theoretically, the losses start, uh, but I think it's about you know we we mentioned the the idea of what do you need in order to to experience a double in an account, and of course, seven point two percent annualized return, and this is oversimplified over ten years. The rule is seventy two; you get a double, and so to me, the the interesting part of of having a buffered equity strategy is you sort of your goal is to raise that annualized return a little bit because you're not taking those those smaller down years, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, you want to compound, right? That's the point. That's how the doubling works is compound growth. And compounding is very, very powerful. And it's easier to compound gains when you are not experiencing losses, obviously. I'm not saying the strategy will never experience losses, don't get me wrong. But I'm saying mathematically in a model, if you're able to avoid you know, minus 10s and minus 15s in your model uh, that happen more frequently, even the minus minus eights that happen one out of five years, that kind of protection really does help you compound growth over the long term. And, uh, you know, we believe that it should outperform the market over any period, any cycle, because avoiding those losses certainly helps you compound the growth. And by the way, you get to do the same thing about buying lower because now you've avoided you know, losses completely, um, you're able to put more money to work when the markets are down. Uh, let's say after a, you know, uh, after a maturity period in your product, uh, you're able to actually have more exposure on the rebound again, right? All of those things still apply. You know, it's really interesting kind of in the, in the remaining moments we have is I think back to, and I'll probably do an episode just on target date funds, because I think they're still misunderstood. A target date fund, of course, is simply an age-based allocation. And a lot of people signing up for the 401k plan at their work 
are auto enrolled and, and, you know, you pick your supposed retirement date, if that's 20 years from now, it, uh, it does what it says it will do. It will put you in a, an allocation between stocks and bonds, maybe international stocks based upon how many years you have until retirement. One of the things in 2008, I remember talking to people who had these target date funds and, and I, it's not that the target date funds guaranteed against loss. They do what they said what they're going to do, which is just move around the, the pieces. But people thought there was real protection. And I think one of the things that's interesting is, you know, target date funds or, or some things that weren't hedged. I feel like it's it's being done all over again. I mean, the risk is still there. It was there was some concern after 2008. But I feel like, Jay, things like hedged equity and buffered equity. Like these are a little bit on the the perimeter, um, but I, I just feel like strategies like this should really start to be more of the core. Um, and I, I'll tell you what, I mean, there's trillions of dollars in 401ks. If they wanted to really mitigate risk, I mean, a hedged equity strategy seems really interesting, but we're not quite there yet. No, we're not. But I'm going to tell you, Derek, it would have been difficult to uh, employ these types of strategies 20 years ago. You know, we've uh, we've been hedging for 10 years now, and um, the option market now provides for that type of volume and that type of liquidity and that type of activity. You go back 20 years ago, you, you really couldn't run a lot of these strategies, right? ETFs weren't nearly as as popular, and options on ETFs were, were, were very difficult to find. And so we you are right. We, we are uh, evolving. The marketplace is evolving. Uh, uh, and unfortunately, I... Um, the world has not adopted options in, you know, in portfolios that really need them options for protection, not speculation, uh, like you said. And uh, I think we'll get there. I mean, it has to be the natural progression here because it is just a smarter way to invest over time. Uh, it is just uh, a better way to manage your risk. You know, I think you and I have said this before. Um, you can't control the outcomes of the market. You can only control the risk you take within it. And options really allow you to define that. Well, Jay, I think that's a great closing quote for the the episode today. And I want to thank you for for coming on. It's a, a good discussion. I mean, you and I could probably go on for like 10 hours. Maybe some people would like that. Yeah, we'll have you back on though. <laughs> and uh, <Of> course. <laughs> I'll link to some of the stuff uh, in the show notes for the episode, of course. And uh, my book, Buy, well, my, that's your book, Jay, Buy and Hedge. Uh, is the book from James My book, Shelley. Broken Pie Chart? Is that yeah. <laughs> Sorry, no, we got that backwards. Yeah, there you go. Broken Pie. We'll, we'll link to the books and stuff. But I, I would recommend, you know, anyone who really wants to understand hedging, uh, Buy and Hedge is, is a good book and, and I'd recommend it. It gets the, the seal of approval. So Jay, thanks again for coming on today. Derek, thanks so much. All right, we'll talk to everyone next time on episode number five.